So about <clears throat> 16 years ago, um, my wife Chris and I, we lived in Gardner, Kansas, just outside of, of the Kansas City area. It's a suburb out of ways, just south of Olathe. And um, we had a little boy on the way in the womb, and uh, it was an exciting time. I was, I was working during the day for a, an aerospace company, a defense contractor, um, and at, at night I would come home and I had a little bench set up in the basement and I would work on, a, on an audio amplifier that I always thought was a neat idea, a neat design. I had started it when I was in college and senior design lab and I kept working on it at home and life was good, God was good and you know, Chris and I were, were excited to have a new one on the way and throughout those years I, I kept working on the amplifier and Little by little, it sort of began to come together, despite things blowing up here and there from time to time. It kept coming together. Eventually, I found out about a small audio company in Springfield, Missouri. I had never really spent any time in Springfield, uh, other than maybe just traveling through on 65 to go down to Table Rock to camp or fish or something. Um, so, But I started, I, I, made the, I made the call and called down here and introduced myself and came down and met uh, the small group of people that comprised SLS loudspeakers, a little, little warehouse building over off a of scenic. Uh, we were building, they were building loudspeakers at the time, and after several months of talking to them and showing them how we could pair the amplifier with the speakers and make these powered speakers and all these cool things, they eventually decided, yeah, let's, 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 let's bring Joel on board, let's, let's buy the, the, the technology he's developed, and and it was extremely exciting. Now life was even even better. I was like, this is incredible. You know, as an inventor, you, you always sort of want to get there where you got your patent and then someone's actually interested in it. And so it was like the pinnacle. All those hard years of work, you know, they paid off. And I remember Chris and I going out to eat with my parents at a nice restaurant and celebrating what the Lord had done. And he really had done a great thing. And it, it, it was a great thing. Uh, and part of the deal was that, that we would get stock in SLS loudspeakers. And that really excited me at the time. I was, uh, my expectations were that we would move down here, that we would productize this audio amplifier, that the company would do well, the, the sales would grow, that the revenues would increase, that the stock value would, would, would go up and Everything would be great that we'd have this nest egg that for our you know for the future and the stock and and that was my those were my expectations, but the Lord had a little bit different plan in store, so we moved down here but and little by little it it, it the company began to struggle it, it took longer to productize the amplifier than than I would have thought um, the the revenues didn't increase in fact they they really went the other direction. And, and sales didn't go up. They, they went down. And, and it took year after year of, of struggling with this and wondering what's, what's going to happen. And eventually then in 2008, SLS went completely bankrupt. Perhaps there are people that own some, or some shareholders of SLS here today. But <laughs> if you're like me, your shares are worth no more than, the, than this paper that I'm holding in my hand. So... It was useless now, that, that stock. Um, but this story of unmet expectations is one that I think many of us, if we're honest, we're probably 
somewhat familiar with. Your story undoubtedly will be different than mine, but nonetheless, unmet expectations at times throughout your life. And it's something that we have to, to wrestle with during our stay here on the earth. Uh, but there's a story in the book of Kings uh, of a great and famous prophet. I love seeing kids in the out here because I, we're going to talk about one of the great prophets and fire coming down from heaven. And it's like, yeah, this is incredible stuff. Uh, and anyway, he, this guy had a nature like ours, the Bible says. For it says of Elijah, he was a man with a nature like our, ours, James says. Uh, and in his story, as we see it unfold in the narrative account in 1 Kings uh, 17 and 18 and 19, you can sort of see how, what he wrestled through. Uh, and how he had to struggle with his unmet expectations. So Elijah shows up on the scene in chapter 17 of 1 Kings during the reign of Ahab, king of Israel. And he pronounces a judgment upon Ahab and his kingdom in the form of a great drought, which is very fitting because we'll see as we get into this that they were worshiping Baal, which is the god of rain and lightning. And, God, and, he, and Elijah comes along, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, and he says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And that's the very first time you ever hear of Elijah, those verses. He just pops onto the scene, and that's what he says. But I think to sort of paint the, the backdrop here, we have to understand a little bit of his times and the reason for this judgment in the form of this drought. And so I've put together a slide here to help us sort of walk through uh, the situation that has unfolded. Um, I start out over here with David. Obviously, following King Saul came David. He was the king that God chose and put on the throne. And David was a man after God's own heart. And of course, we know of his son Solomon and and that was a, and I plotted down here just sort of a, my, you know, sort of graphical, you know, approach to what their spiritual health was. Under Solomon, they were one nation under Yahweh, at peace. Their expansion was to, their borders were bigger than they had ever been. They got to build the temple of God on Mount Moriah. They got to see the cloud descend from heaven over and the smoke in the temple. They got to hear God's voice. And they saw Solomon on his knees. Millions of people, mind you, gathering at Jerusalem to witness this event. This was the pinnacle of the 12 tribes of Jacob. Now, ten and, now all 12 of them, that is, one nation under Yahweh uh, at that moment. But then you saw Solomon as he began to go astray a little bit and let in, make some compromises. And eventually, as after he passed, this, the kingdom quickly divided into two. Jeroboam leading in the north, Rehoboam, the descendant of David in the, in the south, son of Solomon. And Jeroboam was one that you have to take note of uh, because he sought to maintain power and control by trying to work and make things appealing and keep people in the north and bring in very appealing religious practices, Jeroboam did. He, what he did is he, he, he did the diversification and inclusion of non-Levites into the priesthood. He said, 
yeah, I know that God said it should only be the Levites to be, pre- but, but isn't it better for just everybody to be Levites? And then he diversified the locations. Yeah, yeah, I know that God said Jerusalem is the place where my name is, is to be worshipped and you should go there three times a year. I, I know that, but we, we can do it in Bethel. We don't need to, I don't want them to go down there to the south, back there where, where Rehoboam is. Their hearts may turn away from me, Jeroboam thought. So we, we can do it in Dan, way in the north, in Bethel, but we can have a couple good, easy-to-get-to locations. And oh, let's, let's also diversify the feast. God says the three feasts, well, let's add our own feast, and we'll do it at our own time of year. Just a small changes here to try to make it more appealing. And oh, by the way, let's blend the worship a little bit. Let's, let's bring in some of the Canaanite practices of golden calves and idolatry it, it, so we can see something. But we'll say it's in the, in the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, look at the golden calf. Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That was Jeroboam's approach uh, to maintain his power. And then 25 years after Jeroboam, there came a powerful militaristic king over here that I've put in here, Omri. Uh, he was a very powerful king. Uh, and he ruled very strongly um, Israel in the north. Not in terms of re- their spiritual health, but in terms of their military might and power. And he also continued down the roads of Jeroboam and seeking this amalgamation of religious practices and blending with the surrounding cultures around him. Uh, And he also sought stability and power by allying himself with the Sidonians. This is probably best seen with the fact that he moved his son Ahab into a marriage alliance with the the king of uh, the Sidonians his daughter. So the king of Sidon had a daughter named Jezebel. And Omri thought, you know, having my son, the son of the king of Israel, marry the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, it's a great alliance, and it'll show our like our likeness. And so there they were. Now, two nations under Baal, Asherah, and other various Canaanite gods And Ahab and Jezebel are now ruling Israel. And this nation that was once under Yahweh is now under Baal and Asherah and various other Canaanite gods, Molech and Milcom and other ones. And Jezebel, she was a strong, devoted follower of Baal and Asherah. So she went out to kill the prophets of Yahweh and destroy all the altars. And had it not been for some that saved some, they would have all been gone. But she destroyed all of made her best efforts to destroy all of them. And the Bible says about Ahab in, in 1630, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went to serve Baal and worship him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. By the way, that's the capital city of the northern tribes of Israel. He built the house of Baal. So Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And then at the end of of his life, 1 Kings 21 states, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. So that's the picture that we see 
when we get to Elijah. The nation looked more like the surrounding peoples. The nation that used to be strong for the Lord is now just an amalgamation of a melting pot of all kinds of other religious beliefs and practices. Um, And now it's time, you say, for the Lord to show up. The Lord is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. He's not going to let them go untethered forever. And so he sends Elijah to pronounce the three and a half year drought that will be upon them. And in Elijah's mind, it's time after the three and a half, we know that the three and a half years went on and we see Elijah's provided for at the brook and then he is provided for by the widow and her son and the oil and we know all those stories. But then in Elijah's mind and in, in God's will, it's time to have the face off. A battle of the gods. They say Baal, I say Yahweh. They say Asherah, I say Yahweh. Let's call it out. Let's bring, gather them all. Get all the people, Ahab, and bring them to Mount Carmel for the showdown. And Elijah came near in chapter 18, 21, and he came near to all the people that were gathered on the top of Mount Carmel. He said, how long will you hesitate between the two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put fire under it either. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered and said, Elijah, that's a great idea. I like that idea. We'll get to see this and let's find out. So you know the story. Baal's prophets, Elijah, cordially lets them go first. They get to pick their ox. They get to do their deal. They started the, started at the day and the dawn. They go and go and go. Lunchtime comes, no response. They're going into the afternoon. They start cutting themselves, no response. They're doing their little dances and their routines, no response from Baal. But then Elijah steps up, who, by the way, has rebuilt the altar of Yahweh that was torn down. He's dug the trench around it for with a purpose. He's had some people that are willing to trust him pour what little water is left in the nation on top of this altar, smothering it with water and filling the trench with water. And now he steps up in 1836 and it says, and it came about at the time of the offering of of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near. And he said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Today let it be known that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that thou, O Lord, art God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust 
And it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. Which is exactly what Elijah's name means. Translated, Yahweh is God. They got the message. This was truly a mountaintop experience. Seeing the fire of God rain down and lick up the stone and the wood and the water. And it goes on. Elijah then destroys and they capture the 450 prophets of Baal and he destroys them at the brook Kidron. And after three and a half years of drought, Elijah calls for rain and here comes the rain. And then in in an incredible story at the end of that chapter, Elijah sets the new world record speed for a man by foot on ground and outruns Ahab and his chariot back to Jezreel, which is where Ahab happened to be living because the drought was so bad around Samaria. This was ultimate victory. Baal defeated. Ahab silence. He has no record, almost no recorded statement in the whole chapter. People crying out, Yahweh is God. Plan accomplished, Elijah says. He could now relax and revel in the conclusion and victory of the story, a lot like Chris and I celebrating. We've done it. We, we got the patent. We, we got a deal done. We're moving to Springfield, and it's all uphill from there. It's all, all good from here. But that's when it sort of changes for Elijah. For the very next chapter and verses, we find out in chapter 19. Now, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah. She said, so may the gods do to, do to me and even more. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And Elijah was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which is way in the southern reaches of Judah, way far from the northern tribes of Israel. And then he turns and he leaves his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. And he laid down and he slept under that juniper tree. For Elijah, we see this is now total defeat and despair. He's finished. He views his ministry as being over. Uh, In his mind, he's failed to achieve anything better than those that have come before him. And there had been many other people that had come and tried to speak to the nation at various times, times of the judges, times of Saul. I've done no better than any of those others. And we have to ask, he's looking at this and saying, the battle with Baal goes on. The battle against idolatry and syncretism and Baal worship and Asherah worship, it's going to go on. And in Elijah's mind, where we have to say, what, what's leading him to this level of despair and defeat and depression to totally give up? And I think this brings us to the, a, a big issue that we see. He expected something. 
He expected that that would be the final chapter for the Baal story. That they could go on. Victory won. Everything, the climax happened. It's all over. It's smooth sailing from here. Ahab's been silenced. Baal's been dealt with. And the people are crying out for Yahweh. And then he finds this out. And it rattled them to the core. And I think this brings us to a key point. Discouragement can readily come when we place our own expectations upon God and his plans, which I might add, we almost always do this. When our plan doesn't go the way we thought it should, when we put God into our box and our reasoning, we impose our expectations on him. We're setting ourselves up for potential disappointment and despair. Elijah thought his journey was over. He was ready to die right then and there. But the Lord wasn't done with Elijah by any means. And even to this very day, he's still not done with Elijah. We'll see that in a, in a little bit. But the Lord needed to teach Elijah a little bit more about his ways. A little bit more about my plan versus the plan you have in your head. But I want to pause just for a second before we see how the Lord deals with Elijah and how he corrects him. And consider that this is a common thread for many people in Scripture. And I, again, I would say it's common for, for me and probably for many of us. Um, this idea of unmet expectations. Consider first, and this is maybe one you wouldn't have naturally have first gone to in your mind, but consider Samson's parents and the dilemma they faced in chapter 14 of the book of Judges. Samson goes down to Timnah. He sees a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and he told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you could go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. For she looks good to me. She's hot and I like her. Go get her. It's a classic reasoning. Now, if you're, if you're sitting there and you're in his mom and dad, Manoah's shoes, this is not what you were expecting. The angel of the Lord had just shown up the chapter previous and told you that you would have this boy. And that boy was going to begin to set the nation of Israel free from the Philistines. And this just blew a fuse in your plan. How in the world would he go and marry a Philistine woman? But what they didn't realize in verse 4, however, his father and mother did not realize and know that it was of the Lord. For he was seeking occasion, an occasion against the Philistines because at that time the Philistines were ruling over Israel. That's sort of goes against a little bit what, what one might have expected in that day if you were his parents, when your son or daughter walks in and going down a road you didn't plan on. You have to say, what's going on here? What's the Lord's plan? Consider a second example. Why did Jonah run so hard away from God's call to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian world? Why was that the case? Choosing rather to die out in the ocean and even at the end of the book, he'd rather die than face what God did than go to Nineveh. We find out in chapters 3 and 4 when it says, when God saw their deeds, that's after Jonah finally went, 
and the people have repented of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, that they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And the Lord did not do it. But this greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew something, that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better for me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason, Jonah, to be angry? We'll see God ask a similar question to Elijah in a second. But see, Jonah, why did he run? Well, Jonah knew something about God, and he states it right here. I knew that you were slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, compassionate, relenting concerning this calamity that you'll you know, speak against a people group. But I also know something else. The Assyrians kill Israelites. They cut off their heads. They put them on poles for everyone to see in their capital city. And there are arch enemies. And you're going to send me to them? That blows a fuse in my reasoning. I don't understand that. And it doesn't go with my expectations about what you should be doing, God. And my plan is not to go to the Ninevites. So I will go the other way. And he actually has the audacity to tell God, I meant to forestall your plan. I actually meant to stop your plan. So now, God, kill me. I'd rather die. Life is better. Death is better for me than life. The same result that Elijah ended up. Kill me now. It's all over. Consider a third example. Why did the first century Jews stumble so badly over Jesus the Messiah? One week, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, throwing their coats down on the palm branches, and they're seeing him enter the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And yet, one, just one week, several days later, they're crying out, crucify, crucify. What happened there? Could it not be that their expectations for what this coming king would look like and do didn't seem to jive with what they were planning for? Jesus didn't fit their expectations. They're God in a box that they had figured out. They took passages like Zechariah 14.8, the great prophet. And it said, And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and half towards the western sea. And it will be that way in the summer as well as in the winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. And his name will be the only one. Zechariah goes on to say, and the nations will funnel in to Jerusalem to pay tribute to the king on the throne. But then they didn't quite pay attention to Zechariah, same prophet in chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter in Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. And get this, humble, mounted on a donkey even a colt, 
the foal of a, don- of a donkey. And what about Isaiah 53, 5, the other extensive prophecy? He, he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. By his scourgings, we will be saved. Did they catch that part of the prophets? Not really. I don't think it was because of lack of education or lack of intelligence or lack of having the truth given to them, but their expectations, their lens of which they were looking through, limited their comprehension of what this would look like. And so he didn't meet their expectations. So crucify was the cry. Then we see that this isn't just a problem that Elijah had faced. And there are other examples we could look at in Scripture. This is common to man of unmet expectations and trying to figure out God's unfathomable plan. Let's go back to Elijah. Let's see how God corrects and redirects this prophet uh, that's in such despair. Now, Elijah wanders for 40 days and 40 nights. He wanders some 230, 240 miles from his starting point when he outran Ahab all the way back up at Jezreel. And he ends up way, in, in, way to the south in the Sinai Peninsula. And he ends up at a second mountain, famous mountain, Mount Sinai. Sort of like when I gave up on SLS and I said, it's all over at SLS, it's all over in Springfield. And I, we all moved out to Durango, Colorado. And then we got to hear a little message, sort of like what God had to speak here to Elijah. Elijah came to Horeb, the mountain of God, to a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Joel? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and now they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth. God said, and stand on the mountain before Yahweh. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. And it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, killed thy prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And now they seek my life take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, go back. Return on the way to the wilderness of Damascus, way to the north. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. And the one who escapes From the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
So what does the Lord do to work with this prophet? Correct and redirect this prophet. He does several things, if you take a look at this, to move him and teach him about his ways and his plan. First, he asks him the question twice. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Wrestle with that. What's led you down this road of such great despair and depression that you've trodden so many miles and wanderings that you've ended up here? Think about it. Wrestle with that. And then we get to hear Elijah. We get to see, we confirm his struggle in his mind. He he tells us it's all over for Israel is what he says. The fire from heaven at Mount Carmel, it didn't do the trick. They're still after me and it's the, the, the Baal worshiping will go on. So he had to struggle and think through, what's driven me here? We too would be well to struggle, do well when we struggle with when we come to unmet expectations and have to face, Joel, what are you doing over here in Durango? What are you doing over here? Second thing the Lord does, the Lord teaches Elijah something about his ways and his plan. And this is a huge lesson here for Elijah. Yes, the Lord can do mighty works through wind, earthquakes, and fire. Yes, he can send down fire and and light it up in front of all the people. And he can lead with the pillar of fire and the cloud. And he can shake the earth and split the veil. But that's not the only way the Lord works, he shows Elijah. In fact, there's another aspect of Yahweh that's easily missed. Very easily missed. But it's extremely critical for his work of salvation. And that's the still small voice of the Spirit of God going out into the ends of the earth. And I'm sure this might have been difficult for Elijah to be wrestling with what in the world is going on as he takes he steps out on the edge of that cave as the three big powers have gone by. And now he has to wrap his face and he and he looks up and he and he's like, I hear a, vo- a small voice. I got to Pay attention. And the voice says yet again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Third thing the Lord does is he unfolds yet another chapter of his plan. He shows Elijah that it's more than just you, Elijah. You keep pointing the finger. I alone am left. I alone am left. Well, no, 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 no. It's a lot bigger than that. My plan's way bigger than just you. Yes, I love you and you're part of my plan. But don't ever make your plan my plan. My plan is huge. You're a part of my plan. And he says, go back. And there was going to be some new things to show up. Anoint this guy king over Aram. Anoint this new king over Israel. And oh, by the way, anoint another prophet in your place. And oh, by the way, a fourth thing I need you to know about Elijah. You thought it was all over in Israel and it's all gone and done. They're they're all washed up and they've all followed Baal. Well, you're wrong. There's 7,000. That also, like the still small voice, a little bit hard for you to see, isn't it, Elijah? When you look out upon the one nation that was under Yahweh or the one nation under God, where are those people? Well, Elijah didn't see any, but God says there's 7,000 there that haven't bowed the knee. So what can we learn from this story? Um, What can we learn about God's ways, his plans, and how our expectations how they need to yield to those things. One thing I wanted to point out first is we need to realize, number one, that his plans are far bigger than anything that we think we can understand or grasp. 
uh, and I want to go to a New Testament passage to sort of paint this. Consider Paul's letter when he wrote to the capital of the Gentile realm, when he wrote to the church in Rome. Uh, is a critical thing going on here. God has opened the door to the Gentiles. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And even, and we think about it today, billions and billions of Gentiles have come into the fold. How does that fit with your Old Testament Yahweh and Israel view? That tends to blow a fuse. That tends to say, well, wait a second. If there's billions of Gentiles now, what about the tribes of Jacob? What about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And that's what Paul writes to these Gentiles to explain in chapter 11, to paint the picture of this big plan that they need to understand. They need to step back and rest in. 11.1, he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, the Israelites, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew, Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have torn down thine altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And he goes and he lays incredible groundwork of that. You can read that this afternoon. He gets down into 25. For I do not want you, do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And then he concludes the chapter, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Can we rest in that? Can the Gentiles rest in that and know God still has a remnant in Israel? Can we say amen that his ways are unfathomable? His judgments are unsearchable? His plans are truly bigger than what we might think. A second thing I want us to take away from our little story of Elijah here is that his plans and his purposes can extend to realms that we don't even know or understand at times. And I I want to draw this out from a little different story than Elijah's. I want to switch over to look real fast at Job. Consider Job's life. How God greatly prospered him and things went great for Job and he was basically the wealthiest guy alive and had everything that you could ask for under the sun. And yet in one day, something happened that blew his, the, his fuse, his expectations completely blown. One day, these are, this is what happened. The Sabaeans attacked, took all of his oxen and donkeys. And by the way, they took all of his servants that were out in that field. 
That's in Job 1.15. One verse later, fire from heaven fell and killed all of his sheep and servants. One verse later, in verse 17, the Chaldeans just happened to make a raid and they take all of his camels and any leftover servants. And then the two verses after that, 18.19, same day, a huge wind comes up, collapses the house that his sons and his daughters had all gathered at to have a big birthday celebration, and they're all dead. This has a way of sort of rocking a person and saying, this doesn't line up with my expectations for this day. I was expecting to wake up and have a little different day than what just unfolded. And you would say, what's going on here? Well, unfortunately for us, we're privy to a conversation that Job was never privy to. We get to see something going on in a realm that Job never fully got to hear or see. For when we get to read in verse 8 that the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, for there is no one like him on the earth, blameless and an upright man, fearing me and turning away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? And then we get the whole challenge that will then set the stage for what we did, all the things that unfolded in his life. You say, did Job get to know that this was a spiritual demonstration to Satan and the angels watching? I don't think so. Do we see and realize that there is a spiritual realm that's bigger than we can understand that watches what happens to us in our lives and how the Lord works his plan out? It's a big lesson that I've often taken to heart in my mind. Uh, and when we discuss God's plans and his purposes and how they extend as demonstration to the angelic realm, there's one paramount example that I want us to look at real quickly that's probably, in my mind, one of the most fitting for us today and most direct to us, and that is the paramount example of the church. You say, well, how is the church a demonstration to the, the angelic, spiritual, unseen realm? Well, the big mystery that Paul unveils in chapter 3 when he writes his letter to the Ephesians is that there's a mystery that's been hidden for the ages, he says, but now it's being revealed. And that mystery is this, that the Gentiles, in verse 6 of chapter 3, are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. If you're a strong Israelite, that is a way of blowing a fuse, does it not? Saying, I don't understand that. I can't, I, that doesn't fit my expectations that he would open the door. Well, Paul goes on in verse 8 of Ephesians. He says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which it for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Now catch this. He's going to make something known. The manifold wisdom of God may be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in where? The heavenly places. And by the way, Ephesians, and people here at Christ Community Church, this was in accordance with the purpose of the ages. The eternal purpose and plan of the Lord. 
which he carried out through Christ Jesus. God does have an eternal purpose. And we right here today are being witnessed and watched by the angelic realm, both those that are with God and those that have fallen and gone with Lucifer, Satan. They watch, just as we read in the story of Job. And they see what happens with his bride and how he prepares it and what is he going to do and how is he working with it, shaping it, molding it, and getting it ready to be presented. And they too get to see God open the door to billions of Gentiles. And they too get to see Christ as the chief cornerstone of that bride. And the third thing I want to close on before we end the day that, that we want to learn from the story of Elijah is we must see that one of his critical methods of enacting salvation involves something that we may struggle to hear. The still, small voice. Yes, the Lord can do the powerful works of wind, earthquake, and fire, but never forget the still, small voice. This concept is not new either in the Scriptures. You say, well, people always want to see a sign. They, they demand a sign. Show me and I'll believe. Show me with my eyes and I will believe. And God says, listen with your ears and you shall be saved if you believe. Think about Moses. He did more signs and wonders and demonstrations than you could almost ever imagine. Imagine all the things he did. And they're, they're unmatched in history since until the coming of the Lord. And yet you would ask the question, did that result in the salvation and repentance of all those people? You know the story of the nation coming out of Egypt? What about when they walked with their sons and their daughters and they got to see every day the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire at night and see it just right there in front of them? What's that like? You would think, I'll just follow you forever because you've made it so clear. I'll repent of all my wrongdoing. I will walk with your ways and I believe in you. But what does it say in Hebrews happened to that generation? They wandered for 40 years because they hardened in unbelief and they didn't enter into his rest. How, why is that the case? Why is it that when Jesus came and rose people from the dead and, and gave people sight to the blind, people that had never walked, powerful demonstrations like fire coming down from heaven, you'd think everyone should just immediately believe. But even Jesus himself said, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Do you hear the picture? I've done great things. But woe to you, because you're not even responding to those powerful demonstrations. But what Jesus does say over and over and over isn't, I'll give you more and more signs. He says, he who has a, an ear, let him hear. Let him hear the still, small voice of the Lord, as it says in Ephesians 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, then you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. We love to have great, powerful things. We love to have some story of a guy who just was raised up out of the ash heap. His testimony is incredibly powerful. But what about the six-year-old that simply listened and believed? We always gravitate as people 
to the great powerful demonstration. But God says, don't miss it, Elijah, the still small voice. So what about today, this issue of unmet expectations and an understanding of his ways? Is this critical for us in the church? I think it's pretty profound that we have to wrestle with these unmet expectations from time to time. Take for, I'll just throw this out to get, get you thinking on this one. Take, for example, the modern-day church in America. Has it met all your expectations? If it, it just lines up perfectly with the way you thought it would transpire from 2,000 years ago until today, and then you look at our nation, and you say, it just, it just, I think it's exactly the way I planned it. And you'd say, no. I'm a little disheartened, I can easily get discouraged, and I don't see how this is going to work, totally work out. Now, I, fortunately, we look to the Word and we take great hope and we can rest in it, but if we're honest, sometimes our expectations get in the way and cloud things. The powerful demonstration that he did, his victory over death, as seen in the empty tomb, the veil tearing in two, his ascension into the clouds, that's thousands of years ago. And today, today we wait eagerly for his return. How many here want to hear the trumpet sound? Hear the archangel? Feel the earth shake, as Hebrews said, yet again, it will shake. How many of us want to see what the last verse says in the, in the Old Testament? Second, the last verse says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. We're all there. But now we wait patiently. Just like Peter says, we have to be patient. Waiting for none. He doesn't desire any to perish, but all have a chance for repentance. So this is critical for us to align our expectations. And, and sort of closing here on a more personal tone for us today. When the job falters and the stock investments collapse like they did for me with SLS. When the womb is barren, like it was for Sarah. When you lose a family member, like Naomi did. When the health report isn't what you expect to hear, like Job and all of his boils. When your relationship falters with some individual and you end up parting ways, like Paul and Barnabas. When we're mistreated, by our mom or our dad or our, our brothers or our sisters or our own family mistreats us, like Joseph. When your understanding of God's plans are rocked to the core like they were for jo Jonah. When our nation and its leaders walk astray and they continually ignore the message that we try to speak forth from God's word, similar to Elijah. Or when your son or daughter goes a direction that you didn't expect at all, according to your plan, like Samson's parents saw. When you're persecuted or falsely accused, like our Savior Yeshua, where do you turn? Do you go to despair, discouragement? Do you run, run away, get out of there? Can we today rest in his plans? Can we rest in his plans knowing that, as Romans 8 states, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose? Can we cease striving like in Psalm 46 and know that he is God? 
and that he will be exalted among the nations and exalted on the earth? Can we trust in the Lord, like in Proverbs 3, 5, with all of our heart, and lean not on our understanding or our little box? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher, or my ways higher than yours, says the Lord, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven, and they do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You see, SLS didn't go the way I planned it to go. The stock is worth nothing, as I stated. But the Lord had a much bigger plan for me and my wife, my kids. Something far greater than I could ever ask or think. For had we not moved to Springfield, I wouldn't be standing here right this very moment. I wouldn't be speaking to you. I wouldn't know probably any of you. Some of you are like family to my family. Your brothers and sisters that I would have only maybe met on the other side into heaven. I would have never experienced that or been able to serve here at Christ Community Church. And I wouldn't have been a part here of this, the family of God. You know, Job's futures, his fortune was restored. Samson, despite his eyes being gouged out, he had victory over the Philistines. Elijah got to go into heaven on the chariots of fire and look back and see Elisha and SLS was purchased by Dolby Laboratories. Something that still to this day, we sit around and we say, how in the world did that ever happen? Because God's plan was far beyond whatever I could ask or think, and I'm sure he will continue to do so in all of our lives. So, Lord... We thank you for your great plan and your great purposes. And though we at times run in despair and we move far away, run over to Durango, moving everything we have, and you say, Joel, what are you doing over here? Let's go back. Elijah, what are you doing over here? Let's go back. Remember some things about who you are, Lord. Help us as we walk on this earth to realize your unfathomable ways and your great plan for the ages. And when we go and we read and we desire to read the prophecies about the future and we want to hold on to them, help us to always submit and understand that we have finite understanding and we need to rest in you. And when the bad news comes of a bad health report or some different situation that befalls us, let us take rest in knowing that even when we fall asleep, as it says in the New Testament, and we, we die on the earth, And your plan will still continue. And you will continue your great work. And we will then get to be in your presence forever. Lord, for we know you're able to do abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Help us to rest in that today. For we ask it now in Jesus' great name. Amen.